good morning, afternoon, or evening. Please delete as appropriate. Welcome to episode number 375 of the Material Podcast. I'm Andy Anatko. And the other half of the show, Florence Ion, is out sick this week. She did indeed catch COVID from her husband last week, so she's having a necessary week off. Now, Flo is triple vaxxed at minimum, and I've been talking with her, and there's no reason not to believe that uh, she'll be back in next week and in good shape. So that's an important thing for me to report at the very, very top. However, I'm not just going to move right along to whatever bit of silliness I've got planned for the start of the show, because this isn't like someone got a bad case of the flu or got clobbered with a headache or ordered a plate of oysters in a restaurant in Utah. Never a good idea. I mean, COVID should not be lumped in with these. I was sick for a week or two, and wow, did that suck, but I got better things, which we're all used to. Uh, it does. It does get lumped in with that stuff, but it shouldn't. COVID is COVID. I'm going to uh, read off here some of the information from John, John Hopkins Medicine's page about the long-term effects of a mild to moderate COVID infection, just as a refresher here. Um, for three months after your initial recovery, many symptoms can return, including fatigue, shortness of breath, uh, problems with thinking and memory. Uh, many, many COVID survivors do describe lingering cognitive problems as a kind of brain fog. Uh, it can take months for your lungs to fully recover. Ongoing heart inflammation has been noted even in people who suffered only mild COVID symptoms, people who had no medical issues before they got sick. That loss of taste and smell you've heard about, that is a real thing. The problem usually resolves itself within a few weeks, but it can persist long afterward. The Johns Hopkins report says that 60 to 80% of those people see improvement in their senses of smell and taste within a year. That leaves 40 to 20% who do not. The medical community is now has a couple years worth of data here, and they're also starting to notice increases in kidney problems and type 2 diabetes in former COVID patients. And I should note that this report was updated just a couple of months ago. So this is all uh, validated stuff. I know that we got a lot of information at the very beginning that was highly speculative, but now we're starting to get numbers that people can look at. Now, here's what the problem is. I mean, Humans, we try to understand something new that we haven't experienced before by relating it to something that we already understand or that we have experienced before. And this kind of thing can really trip us up when we're presented with something like COVID. Uh, it's similar enough to something that we're all familiar with. Again, oh, God, boy, did I get sick. Went to that trade show, came home with the flu, and boy, after 10 days, I finally was feeling, feeling right again. I mean, it's we're familiar with it. It's similar enough to that sort of thing that we leap to some dangerous conclusions. And, of course, our collective crisis fatigue isn't helping the matter either. Add it all up, and we, as individuals and as a society, have largely stopped thinking about COVID as the public health catastrophe that it actually is. All of a sudden, we're not skeeved out by a public event without a mask or vax requirements. Hey, we'll go anyway. But we're not demanding that our employers or school administrators or elected officials promote and enforce protocols that keep us safe because it's unpopular now. And all of a sudden, those of us who are wearing masks on the subway and in crowded public spaces, I'm speaking for myself, of course, we start to feel a little bit like freaks and we start to wonder if we aren't just overdoing things a little. And is this all still necessary? And like I said, I've, I've felt this too. I'm, I'm no exception. Uh, I truly had to sit myself down a couple of weeks ago and force myself to sit through an entire mental PowerPoint presentation on the subject of COVID before I gave in and conceded that no attending the Boston comic con <laughs> where there was no mask or vaccination policy was a crazy risk. Doesn't matter that I bought my tickets months and months and months ago. I think it's best that that money go to waste rather than waste a couple of weeks in recovery. And God knows what later on actually, I mean, it's that, that, that makes me look kind of smart, but I've, I have to admit that uh, I've been slipping a little bit. I've, I've stopped wearing a mask while I do my grocery shopping. Now is wearing a mask still absolutely necessary. Well, rationally, no. I mean, we know a lot more about how COVID is transmitted now than we did back when, uh, you know, March of 2020, when I wouldn't consider entering the same supermarket without a mask and gloves and hosing down the shopping cart with isopropyl outside first. But wearing this added mask is still added safety. I should desire the added safety. And it's not as if N95s are hard to find or expensive these days. There's really no excuse. As the saying goes, a person is smart, but people are dumb. And it sure seems as though the dangers of COVID have been eradicated 
not from our, our, our public health situation, but from the public consciousness. It feels like we all took a vote and we decided that we won that public health war. Hooray! Despite the fact that COVID doesn't care about the public vote count, it just keeps right on attacking us in waves with variant after variant fighting to break through vaccinations that appear, again, according to evidence, to weaken over time. Meanwhile, our friend Florence Ion and thousands like her are being made to suffer and they have to write out a two- or three-week COVID infection that inflicts hurts and indignities and frustrations like nothing previously experienced. And then they have to go right back to work, hoping that their symptoms won't recur. And with impeccable timing, an article in the Financial Times this week digs into the stresses that COVID is going to be placing on the global healthcare system for years and years to come. And not just because of all those people who were uh, suffered long-term injury uh, because uh, because of COVID and who required uh, treatment and hospitalization. Like I said, researchers, they now have two years worth of data from planet COVID, and they've seen statistical evidence that uh, new incidences of heart disease, lung disorders, diabetes, and cognitive issues are way, way up. And they're looking for reasons to explain that. And they're, they, those, those numbers are coincident, of course, with the spread of COVID. Now, nothing's been proven as yet. But there's a compelling theory that surviving a COVID infection leaves the victim much more vulnerable to a wide range of long-term issues later on. It's an interesting article, and it's linked in the show notes. Some of the experts at the Financial Times interviewed suggested, I, thought, I found this really interesting, that in the near future, we are all going to need to maintain a greater and more detail-oriented awareness of our day-to-day health. I mean, as people, not as patients. Uh, every day, we're going to have to rely on fitness technology, like wearables and at-home medical devices, like blood pressure readers, to perform these routine maintenance checkups that we might have undertaken just once or twice a year with our local uh, GP. One expert is likening these upcoming changes to how consumers' relationships with banks have changed over the past 10 years. Like nowadays, we rarely visit an actual bank because we can perform most of those basic banking functions like depositing checks, transferring money between accounts. We can do that ourselves on our phones. And so if we go to an actual bank, that's a very, very large scale problem that we can't deal with at the house. And so transfer the uh, think of these our home uh, fitness devices as that smartphone with a banking app and think of uh, the hospital as a bank physical bank and you get to where uh, they think that things are, are starting to go but okay let's go back to this sad sad state of our collective covid response we're still in control as individuals we shouldn't it's uh, i'm i'm complaining about people who act as if covid is over I don't think that we should swing to the other direction and decide that, oh, COVID is, we're doomed, 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 doomed. We need to fundamentally rewrite all the rules and all the structures of our society to accommodate this this wild pandemic that will kill us all. Because we, you know, in the two, past two years, we've done a lot of work. We've done a lot of education. We've done a lot of common sense stuff. A lot of people are being vaccinated. Not enough, not as uh, not everybody, but enough that I we think that the human race will can, will live long enough to die because of climate change and not because of this pandemic. Uh, but no, no, we, we're we're still in control as individuals. We uh, I still pull up, put on an N95 whenever I ride public transportation or if I'm going to be in close quarters with strangers for any length of time. And yeah, I think I'm going to continue to uh, not continue to. I'm going to resume wearing a mask when I'm shopping because I really should. And I'm going to keep getting those boosters. Uh, actually, the good news there, this week, the FDA here in the United States approved a new edition of, uh, of, of COVID boosters that are uh, equipped to handle all the new variants that have been coming out in the past year. Just like you're looking forward to upgrading to Android 13 for that squiggly line you get when you're playing music in the notification bar. This is like that, only it will, again, maybe help you not spend a week or two in bed and then a month in the hospital. But still, I mean, we do need to perform more than personal safety, look out for, for ourselves. We need to continue to demand better of the people who are asking for minimum or no disruption to the economy or to our simple convenience. The Andy Anatko, who was grateful back in March of 2020 to locate a case of aloe vera for sale on Amazon, would be shocked to learn that COVID is still a thing here in August, September of 2022 with no end zone in sight. The situation we're in isn't what we wanted or isn't what we expected, but it is what we've got. 
And we need to remind ourselves and everybody who'll listen that whether or not we're stuck with it forever is largely a voluntary collective choice. If you look at the CDC COVID data tracker, I've got it open in front of me right now. Uh, It's got USA statistics for the past month. Reported cases, hospitalizations, and death rose all over the summer, but they're starting to level off now, so that's good. But here are the numbers. 82,475 new cases were reported every day on average. 5,255 COVID sufferers were admitted to hospitals every day on average. And every day, on average, 397 people died of COVID, bringing our national score to 1,039,055. And as of August 26th, 23% of all American adults remain unvaccinated and completely unprotected. If you haven't received a booster recently, again... Uh, call your, go to your pharmacy, go to your doctor, call them up, see if they got the new, uh, the, see if they got the, 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 the new booster, the new vaccination, uh, and stay safe and help each other. I've got a, there's a, I, I read a quote by uh, Mark Vonnegut. He's a pediatrician. He's the son of the late Kurt Vonnegut. And it's absolutely stuck with me and almost become a reminder of one of my duties as a human on this planet. And it's so simple, but very, very beautiful. We're all here to help each other get through this thing, whatever it is. He wasn't talking about COVID specifically. It's actually a very, very old quote. But when things like COVID come up and I'm trying to figure out what my best response is, that's good guidance. Uh, Flo, also, we all love you. (laughs) Get better soon. Actually, though, I don't want to leave it there. Before we take our first break, I think I'll I'll talk about something that's a little bit more cheery. I got a new audio system this week. Yay! Uh, I've invested in some top quality analog components, you know, for that warm, natural, fresh from the mixing console sound where the audio can gamble and romp and flick its bushy tail through the grass exactly as the engineers who mixed the album intended without being made to suffer these slings and arrows of outrageous digital quantization and compression. But I assure you, I'm still very much a cheapskate freelance pauper. Uh, I'm talking here about a 40-year-old cassette player that I picked up on eBay for the cost of about, like, two deluxe pizzas. Uh, specifically, of the mighty GE3-5280B, uh, which was forged in the massive foundries of General Electric during the opening salvos of the Reagan administration and the height of the boombox revolution, like 1982-1983. If you've been listening to material for a good long while, you might remember me speaking about how uh, at the start of the COVID lockdown, like all all of us took up new hobbies. Some of us went a little bit insane. And the intersection for me of those two was uh, collecting tape players, uh, (laughs) mostly mono players. But as it it turned out, I I started getting interested in this stuff and looking at uh, the design story and the history of technology that the evolution of these tape players uh, 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 tells over the course of between like 1960 uh, all the way to like 2000, the mid, mid, uh, mid two thousands. I had, I had some fun with it. I still, I didn't, I didn't like, you know, block the fire exits buying so many of them, but it, it was productive. Didn't cost me very much. Nobody want there. There are people who collect uh Walkman. There are people who collect like, stereo boom boxes mono tape players nobody wants them so again one pizza as cheap as a small pizza really is all it'll take you and yeah this uh this one that i bought it is a mono player has only one speaker but i declare it to be the king of mono boom boxes it's it's a big two-way speaker that makes big nice sounds and in the 1980s ge's radio tuners were just about the best you could buy they're still kind of at the top of the performance scale if you want to actually receive radio Back in the day when streaming happened over FM radio instead of over Wi-Fi, a radio circuit that could pull in a strong signal from several markets away was premium, highly desirable stuff. And this is the one you wanted. So this is sort of like the super, super deluxe of the General Electric super radios. And it's not just all about actual practical functional (laughs) items. Like as with almost everything else in my tape collection, I love the styling of this player. It's just plain cool. It's all like brushed metal and plastic that wants to pretend that it's brushed metal. Uh, It has a five segment LED, red LED that 
dances with the music as I, as, as it plays. I've got a bank of knobs and a bank of mechanical toggle switches in the front and the tape mechanism itself is operated with a half a dozen chromed plastic mechanical levers mounted above a chromed metal bar that presents those prevents those plastic levers from getting snapped off. Uh, and, uh, underneath a, there's a cassette, a cassette compartment that's fronted by a piece of glass or acrylic, probably acrylic that shows off kind of like a light green tint when the light hits it right. And it looks like a million bucks. And this one I got on eBay it arrived this week and it's working perfectly. I thought that maybe I'd have to change the belts or change the caps, stuff like 40 year old pieces of electronics, especially mechanical electronics, things just don't last. And that's the, those are the things that wear up, but nope, works perfectly. I might be, it might have to do some maintenance on it later on, but I really have been listening to my vintage cassette tapes on it ever since it arrived this week. Now, at this point, I do want to reiterate that I don't like nostalgia at all. Uh, I've, YouTube keeps recommending these videos to me of you know, vintage tech, vintage electronics, because uh, I love the Techmoan channel, and it, there's some overlap there, and so it's it's and I, I do often watch videos of people repairing old stuff, so I can because I like watching it. And it's also it's a, it's a, something that I can learn about, and that means like YouTube's algorithm trying to figure out, oh, he likes he loves like vintage nostalgic technology. I don't like those videos at all uh, because. Too many of these channels, they're all like, hey, remember the TRS-80 color computer? And I'm like, yes, yes, I do. And the guy has to go, oh, well, here, here, here's, I've got a uh, TRS-80 color computer right here. And then I think, yes, I, I, I concur. I acknowledge that that is, in fact, a TRS-80 color computer. And it doesn't go anywhere from it. It's like, I don't want to, you know, it's, it's, I, I want to learn the history of, of it. I want to know how it was developed. I want to know like what it was competing with all the fights that went in inside Tandy and Radio Shack to decide like what they wanted to make. Do they want to go up, up, up scale? Do they want to go down, down, down scale? And how, what, what were the challenges? I don't want to just simply, Hey, remember the eighties? Like, yeah, I do. And again, I remember, I remember the Reagan administration and a lot of that isn't really, really, really happy stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's nostalgia. It's a waste of time. It's, it's caustic. It's acidic. Uh, I, I learned actually that it was considered an actual psychological disorder in the 1700s and 1800s. And that knowledge didn't surprise me one tiny bit. Um, there's a paper online at the national institutes of health that describes nostalgia as I'm quoting here, a psychopathological condition affecting individuals who are uprooted, whose social contacts are fragmented who are isolated and who feel totally frustrated and alienated. Yeah. I have to say that those people, at the NIH, they really know what they're talking about. That's that, that tracks with my opinion. So you're reinforcing my predetermined opinion. So I'm going to endorse the NIH's take on it too. I've always thought of nostalgia as a really damaging and retrograde kind of yearning for a past that probably never really existed as you remember it. Why, you know, live in the now, live in the future, appreciate the past, but don't try to return to it because you can't. You have to just make, you have to manufacture something to return to, and it's not as good. So, no, the, the fact that I was listening to Genesis's Invisible Touch earlier today, that doesn't mean that I wish to relive my high school days. If the words high school weren't enough, again, throw in the angle of Reagan's second presidential term. And honestly, 40 years seems like not nearly enough distance between now where I am and high school back then. No, I, I am listening to my favorite albums from the 80s, but that's only because those are the tapes that I actually own. You know, uh, I'm, not, I'm not buying brand new tapes to listen to them on an old machine. If I'm going to buy something brand new, it's going to be a digital. So, yeah, again, nostalgia. Ugh. Uh, but nonetheless, sense memory is a powerful thing. Uh, there's a song uh, on side two, Domino Parts 1 and 2, uh, that uh, that uh, came up about 10 minutes ago when, when I was preparing my show notes. And uh, I was instantly transported to these ungodly hot summer afternoons in the Boston area, pushing a, la pushing a lawnmower across a, a specific section of my, my family's backyard where the grass was all dry and burnt out because it had no shade. It was kicking up lots and lots of dirt and dust. And the reason why I'm thinking not just of like doing yard work at my, uh, uh, in the house when I was a kid, but that specific place, because Invisible Touch was one of my go-to tapes to listen to on my Walkman while I was cutting the grass. And usually when I got to that section of the lawn, that was the song that would come up on the album. So yeah, it just takes me immediately back again. 
Okay, for uh, maybe I like nostalgia a little, but yeah, it's just just because just because you like uh, you like it when a random pleasant memory hits you again. It's that doesn't mean that you're you have a psychosomatic psychological disorder or something like that. Also, talk to thirteen-year-old Andy on in a in ninety-two degree July day, sucking in dust after like an hour's worth of work, and yeah, he's someday. I'll, I'll relive this and I'll smile about it. Probably because you're probably because God damn it. 40, 50 year old Andy, you're not actually pushing the damn mower. Sorry. I cursed and I should not have cursed, but yeah, 13 year old Andy would have cursed a lot worse than that. If someone like me said something like that while he was trying to rehydrate himself in the kitchen and wondering when his color vision would, would return to him. But I regress. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I promise you, I'm enjoying the hell out of this machine for entirely proper aesthetic reasons. Uh, I wouldn't give up my digital Walkman or my home media server for a 40-year-old cassette player. You know? But still, I do miss how tactile the process of listening to music used to be. And that's that was a good reminder. Like uh, the album, uh, this cassette, it's something that can hold and touch. Like, and it makes noises. Like the, the cassette rattles in the box when I open the box. Got to press the eject button, wait for the wait for the door to open, put the slot in the slot the cassette into the player, push the door closed until I hear a clear and feel a click, push the play lever lever down, down, down until I, the tension of the spring is increasing and I feel that it's mechanically engaged uh, the playhead and pushed it into uh, push it inside the cassette and the pinch pinch roller and it's clicked down and locked into place. Uh, the music starts. I can look at the. I can see the tape reels turning and the number on the little wheels on the mechanical counter are increasing. Then to adjust the volume, I. I I adjust it with a knob that offers tactile feedback and a little bit of resistance, not a slider on a piece of glass. I can fiddle with the case, of the cassette, look at the track listing and the album art while I listen, let the bouncing audio level LEDs flicker me into a kind of a meditative state, like looking into a fireplace. Yes, I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to slide in nostalgia. So I'll end that there. But, but yeah, no, I, I, these interfaces are useful and I wish that we see more hybrids. We see, we get all the benefits of streaming audio, uh, perfect uncompressed flawless reproduction of digital music from a server somewhere beautiful speakers uh, the ability to make randomized playlists all that sort of stuff but there's something about the tactile interfaces that is really really valuable and we shouldn't lose you might be aware that uh, a couple of weeks ago there was a study of uh, user interfaces and car car dashboards that's saying that knobs buttons and toggles uh, work better or in, let let drivers operate the car more safely than touchscreen interfaces because you reach out you you're holding you, you muscle memory you 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 reach out until you feel uh, the the switch underneath your finger you press until you hear a click until you feel a click and then you know that okay the air conditioning has been turned on you don't have to aim you don't have to navigate through menus and stuff like that the appropriate interface for the appropriate use case and I think that mechanical interfaces are really really good for something that's as uh, artistic meditative as listening to music also i mean my plex server it's been acting up just a little tiny bit i'm having some i'm having some problems like listening to music <laughs> i mean i'll diagnose a problem with the server and i'll fix it but every time that i want to play an album it's like i'm sending a small prayer into a mysterious ineffable ineffable ether and my prayer will either be answered or ignored and if it's ignored i can either choose to spend five or ten minutes diagnosing the problem or i can just give up um and other streaming services are also kind of wonking up, or at least they are at the desk uh, with a comfy chair and the big work top and the multiple big screens and the good speakers where I write my show notes and do most of my real, real work. Um, like the, the week, this week's show is late. Uh, it's not because uh, Flo was sick. It's because in part, <laughs> okay, in part because rather than recording the show uh, like immediately, uh, on, uh, on, on Wednesday morning, the first time that I had any free time to do it, I you know spent some time writing the show notes and planning things out and basically scheduling the recording time for not the last minute, but comfortably the last block of time where, uh, Jim, our editor can edit it and can be posted uh, something like the usual time. And of course, during that time, uh, the hard drive on the computer that's at, on the big comfortable desk started acting up. It's not dead, but it got this, uh, things kept freezing up and, and locking up and I had to diagnose the problem. Then I discovered that the, the drive hasn't failed, but it is failing. So I had to 
you know, see if it could be fixed. No, I can't fix it. Okay, but can I at least make sure is, is it has been backed up recently? Yeah, last backup was a couple of days ago. Like, okay, well, even just in case, since the drive is working okay, let's spend some time like manually going through and doing manual like uh, dis- fi- file copies just to make sure that we've got every file that we really count on. We're, all this sort of stuff that took me away from the job. And then of course, that I missed the last slot that was available to to, uh, to get this edited and in place. But yes, I'm I'm apologizing for this show being so late. It's a good good excuse to apologize. But what I'm saying is that like Spotify works, but sometimes my my Mac can't page memory to that drive very quickly. So like as I'm streaming music. Maybe there'll be like a four or five second pause from time to time during the middle of a track while because Spotify is trying to, you know, get some data from what it thinks is memory, but is actually virtualized or whatever. And I think that's the big difference between uh, like a uh, music can be a productive distraction, meaning that there's something running in the background that kind of like, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it. Maybe it's just the way that my brain works, but it's like. There's a metronome and sort of a subconscious reflection of time moving forward. And that sort of keeps my work on that beat without like me. With, 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 I mean, it's a Phil Collins tape. I'm not saying that when the, when in the air tonight comes on, I, that doesn't, I have to stop what I'm doing. Cause I know that I'm going to need my hands free to do the drum solo in three minutes. But, but I'm saying that's the sort of distraction that like actually like helps me get work done. But the tension of why did the music stop? When's it going to start again? That is like, that that actually grinds the gears of my brain and gets me out of like whatever flow i'm doing it but the thing is like take out the cassette player it just works you put the cassette tape in you, and it goes or at least when it doesn't go it's clear that it's clearly that it's clear that like jesus has called it back home again and you're not gonna get it to work again and there's nothing you can do right here right now that is going to get it work uh, get it to work again in time that you can continue to listen to it while you work so you just basically put it aside uh so yeah i think there, there are all kinds of things that uh using an, this alternative method of music delivery is reminding me of not things that reasons to stop listening to digital music, but things that we can inherit from uh, cassette players that, that would enhance my digital music experience. I, I should really move forward. But the one last thing is that I, I really, really dislike that uh, most music services, like usually I'm not listening to a playlist or I'm not listening to a radio station, like a, you know, a streaming radio station. Usually I'm listening to like a specific album from start to finish. And partly that's because that also gives me sort of a measurement of time that at some point the music ends and I'm aware that, okay, 45 minutes to an hour have now passed. Maybe it's a good time to go up and take a walk or maybe subconsciously I should be aware of how much time I have left to finish this thing or how much time I don't have left to finish this thing. But uh, Spotify, I, maybe there's a setting that I haven't checked. I, I should, I know, but it's automatically says, Ooh, well, let's start playing music. That's sort of like this album. And then two hours go by and I don't really notice it. And it's like, until I notice that, wait a minute, this sounds nothing like Phil Collins. What, what's going on here? And uh, see, it's like, uh, Spotify just keeps putting new records on when it, when it stops playing the thing I want. It's altogether. It feels like Spotify, like has a desperate need to be loved like almost as if like Spotify isn't comfortable with those natural pauses in the lulls and conversation that any solid friendship sails right through. But when you're, when you're with a friend or someone who's like worried that, Oh my God, he'll like, we, we have nothing to talk about. I have to say something. Yeah. So you can just, I like you Spotify. I'm paying 10 bucks a month for you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing that if I did not like you, you don't have to keep you know, filling in these gaps in, in, in my audio threshold here. Um, but there, there is one last thing that I'm looking forward to with this cassette player. At some point, I'm going to have to load it up with, what, 50 or 60 D-sized batteries, however many it takes, and then listening to it outside, outside while I enjoy a sandwich at a table uh, by one of my neighborhood's takeout places. It's, that's something that I think has been missing from, uh, from the tapestry of, of, neighborhood, of neighborhoods, like ever since uh, boomboxes sort of became extinct. Like, I'm, I'm no Radio Rahim by any stretch, points to you if you get that uh, reference. Um, and this GE mono tape player, that's about as far away from a Pro Max Super Jumbo boombox as you can possibly get bonus points if you get that reference as well. Uh, I just think it would be fun for all the tourists uh, who are strolling my quaint historic seaside New England village to occasionally just, they hear little wafts of Cindy Lauper's first album played on what amounts to a period instrument, you know, as they pass by. It's like, it's like when you get, you pass by a restaurant and you smell 
uh, you smell like spaghetti sauce, just a whiff of it as you pass by. It's pleasant. You'd, you wouldn't want to be stuck uh, on a six-hour airplane flight next to somebody who decided to have a big smelly takeout container of, of garlic and onion uh, uh, putnesca sauce. <laughs> but a little waft, that's lovely. And I think that little music that's being played in the street, that's that's lovely stuff. And I also would be lying if I didn't admit that possibly I like this partly because these passersby, they won't have any say whatsoever in the matter uh, of whether they get to hear this or not. Like I'd be lying if I did admit that inflicting some noise on these people from afar uh, appeals to me. It's been a long summer and that summer has been filled with lots of weekenders making lots of noise under the influence of a lot of sangria. Usually outside my open window that has to be open because it's 90 degrees outside and I have to podcast but I have to close it because again, they're singing come on Eileen or whatever. And I wish they weren't. Okay. But let's, let's get to the actual show. Uh, after this break, we got a pretty good sh- uh, show for you, despite the fact that we don't have flow with us. Um, there's some new uh, experiments with uh, google.com. Google's actually doing some trials of uh, show, previews and show offs of a couple of things that are going on, including uh, what's coming up with Android 14 and satellite connectivity. We'll be talking about that. Google is making preparations for the midterm elections, and hopefully it's better preparation than simply the apologies and explanations for why they caused the unmitigated disaster that happened in the United States in November of 2022. Uh, and we're going to close down since this is a solo show and I can uh, speak just for myself. I'm closing with an important editorial that I hope you will, uh, you will stay tuned for because I think that's it's, I think you'll be as outraged by, uh, something that Google recently did as I certainly was. I can barely contain myself. I can barely wait until the editorial part of the show to share it with you, but that's all coming after this break. Well, Google gave us a couple of peeks at uh, at the future this week. Uh, one of them is a potential future. They've been messing around or running some experiments on what you see on the Google.com page. Uh, as you all know, Google often engages in live fire experiments of new features and user interfaces for services. It'll, it'll push out uh, a change that they're considering to actual users when they use the actual service to see how they react to it and how they interact with it. It's probably wired up with, hey, where did the mouse move? Did it how Did it pause above certain things, all all kinds of stuff that we don't know anything about. But uh, so the other day I opened up google.com and I saw a big change. Normally there's a bottom grid of shortcuts to websites I've been using. That's the standard interface. This time though, there was a bank of widgets, five widgets in rounded squares from left to right near near the bottom of 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 the screen. It was pretty similar to what I see on my Nest smart display or the screen of my Google TV when it's, when it's idle. Uh, So I got five widgets, uh, weather, a top story from news, a what to watch uh, tile with like streaming stuff, uh, trending searches, and finally the Dow Jones Industrial Average. I okay, I, I like this idea and I don't like it. Let's get to what I don't like. the The problem is that none of this is useful information to me. Like maybe the weather, maybe, but I've probably seen the weather like two or three times on lock screens and stuff like that. Uh, A top story tile, that might be useful to me, but it depends on the story. Whatever the top story is, eh, is it going to get, is it a distraction? Is it something that I need to know? Is given that I open up google.com specifically to do a web search, is it important enough that instead of doing the thing that I opened up google.com in order to do, I'm instead going to be distracted from it and click on this story? That's not very, very likely. It's probably the sort of story where it doesn't matter how I react to it or not. Where okay, incoming missiles, uh, you are at the epicenter because I can get your location, kiss your butt goodbye. Like, okay, what am I going to do with that information? I, I, I appreciate the fact that you've, you got it to me, but well, is that, was that worth like taking away my shortcut to reddit.com? I don't think so, but yeah, uh, let's see, uh, top story, the trending searches, those are similar too, but they tend to be like mostly sports stuff unless you narrow it to a specific category. And there's, and by the way, there's no way to modify these tiles, no way to choose other ones, or at least none that I saw. So you're stuck with these five and they're configured however they're configured. But the others are just totally useless to me. The state of the stock market, never of any use possibly to me. Uh, I also, uh, the what to watch widget for videos, I kind of even resent it. Like I, I resent that no matter where or how it shows up because it's too close to a form of advertising as far as I'm concerned. Because, okay, you're trying to get me interested in a show that I've probably never heard of and probably are not interested in. 
and I should be suspicious that this recommendation is not there because you've seen my past viewing history and realize that, ooh, a new episode, the new season of Bob's Burgers starts next week. He really loves that show. He's going to want to know about it. I, I'm wondering how many ad dollars went into this this ad this this recommendation for the she-hulk show on disney plus it's like okay you know do i i it feels it feels like a very 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 tiny tiny kind of theft to me you're, you're stealing my attention to see an ad in a place where i'm not expecting to see an ad so that's i don't like that long range i'm also kind of concerned that the top google page could get like super cluttered like yahoo.com or another portal page where it's just a fire hose of live information and data and photos. And if you came there for a purpose, you're probably going to be distracted from it. It's going to take you a few seconds to figure out what that was. Um, Google that they do offer to me a, an enormous raft of services that I rely on every day. And yet google.com, the page is always super clean, which keeps it super friendly. And it gives the Google doodle room to really, really shine. They're fun. They're wonderful. They're pretty. I like them. That said, overall, it's a good experiment. I mean, the, the purpose of opening google.com is to perform a search. Like I said, I, I opened that, that page with a purpose in mind. So that's an opportunity. I mean, it would be very cool and very on brand if Google tried to anticipate what, what I'm about to search for. For instance, Google recently added some features to Google Chrome that help you pick up a line of research where you last left, left, left it off. I'd love to see a widget with new content that relates to that search or that reminds me that, hey, you were looking at uh, 1894 uh, French uh, uh, magic realist painters. Do you, you want to continue? I'll, 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 I'll continue where you left off. That would be cool. And I'll, I can also see why strategically Apple, Apple, Google would want to experiment with adding more value to Google.com because – Really, the most important part of that page is the Google logo. It keeps reinforcing the fact that you're not just using this generic feature that uh, that belongs to nobody. You are going to Google to perform a Google search. And who visits that actual page anymore and gets reminded of that branding anymore? Like we type queries directly into the address bar these days. And over time, like we the world just thinks about search, not specifically Google search. Of course, Google's still so dominant in search that you could almost say that there's nobody else in the category. As of last month, July, uh, July, Google has 83% of search worldwide. Bing has 9%, and all the others on that month-by-month graph is basically crumbs that are floating just above zero. But still, it's important and valuable for Google to be present in everybody's minds as the resource resource for search. Google's competition in search mostly comes in the form of Amazon and Expedia and Reddit. I myself use those use these alternatives when I specifically want info, information about something I want to buy or when I want an informed answer to a practical question. Now, it's a day later since I first saw this change, and my Google.com page still shows the new widget design. So I hope they continue to think about this for both reasons. I hope they continue to I hope they make it better, and I hope they continue to think about ways in which they could add a little bit of extra value to Google.com without ruining Google.com's top page. I mean, I really wouldn't mind keeping Google.com open as a sort of dashboard on my computer. I just don't want it to become a cluttered mess. Well, we got another sneak peek at future Google features. This time we get our first actual like information from Google about features of Android 14. This coming only a couple of weeks after Android 13 was released. But it was they did it sort of on the schneid, if you know what I mean. So uh, it's not really a story or a blog post or a news release. It's actually a tweet. Uh, Hiroshi Lockheimer, who is basically Grand Poobah of, uh, of Android at Google, uh, tweeted out, I'm going to quote here, while to think about user experiences for phones that could connect to satellites. When we launched the G1, which is the very first Google phone, in, uh, in 08, it was a stretch to get 3G plus Wi-Fi working. Now we're designing for satellites. Cool. Excited to support our partners and enabling all of this in the next version of Android! Exclamation mark. Uh, so uh, Lockheimer's Twitter is a kind of a front porch. His account, it's, it's kind of I think of it as kind of a front porch on Google's marketing and PR. Like you know, it's got these intentional, purposeful messages. It's not like he was bored. Uh, while waiting for a bus and he decided just out of the top of his head, say this specific thing, it is calculated, but it's dressed for casual Friday. Like, you know, Hey, uh, come on, pour yourself a glass of ice cold lemonade. I'm sitting in the rocking chair. Whittle. You know, so it's dressed for casual Friday. I suppose you put it. 
Uh, I get the impression that Google has nothing in particular to announce about uh, Android phones that connect to satellites. Certainly nothing so fully formed as to be given a slot on the marketing calendar and a blog post, you know, that sort of stuff. But they do know that there's a lot of heat around this topic right now, and they want to be there with some sort of coverage that mentions that Google is moving in that direction, uh, even though they might not necessarily have any partnerships or timetables or anything else they can actually talk about uh, that they can back up. Because, you know, hey, this is just a Google employee's Twitter account. Again, it's Hiroshi Lockheimer, but okay. Gosh, that, oh boy, that, uh, that, that loose cannon. If he's not, if he's not uh, uh, admiring the fact that Android 14 will support satellites, he's congratulating Samsung on their new folding phone. <laughs> we can't control, we can't control him. I mean, we wish we could, but hey, if we could control him, he wouldn't be Hiroshi Lockheimer. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm being, I'm being sarcastic. That was, I'm a Gen Xer. That's my first go-to. Um, but so, yeah, it's, it's timely because Apple's annual iPhone announcement is happening next week. Uh, satellite features are one of the rumors that's on the bingo card of possible new features of, uh, of the phone. Also last week, T-Mobile and SpaceX announced a strategic partnership, uh, on this idea in a big, big flashy way. Okay. But what, what does, what are we talking about when we talk about satellite connectivity from a cell phone? Because we're used to satellite phones where it's a big brick with a big, huge stubby antenna that talks to satellites, you know, uh, uh, 300 miles up in the air. Uh, that's not something that a basic phone can do. Well, maybe, but depends on what you mean by connectivity. Uh, so the T-Mobile SpaceX announcement is ambitious because it's, it's a press release, it's a press announcement. They were couching satellites as a full-on alternative to connecting to a land-based cell tower uh, where they'll come not as a primary means of accessing the network, but they would come, this connection to a satellite would come into play uh, if uh, your phone can't see a nearby tower. So if you're really, really out in the sticks uh, or in a desperate situation, so to speak. And they're also saying that it will be a limited connection, initially just basic text messaging, uh, probably starting next year. But they do say that the partnership is intended to expand over time into voice and even limited data access eventually. Now, that's way more ambitious than what's been rumored for the iPhone for the past year or two. Um, iPhone stuff, it's more practical. Essentially, what they're, uh, what's being rumored is that Apple is doing an expansion of uh, the iPhone's emergency call services. So if the, the, uh, the, if the, the phone can't see a cell tower and you're dialing 911 or pushing the emergency button, it will try, it, it will uh, try to reach that, that service 911 or whatever your country's emergency system is via a satellite connection. And that's important stuff. It makes sense that there'd be less coverage of uh, less cell towers in sparsely populated areas. I mean, we complain about uh, underserving uh, uh, broadband starved communities. But the fact of the matter is that they have to be people to subscribe to and pay for those services in order to merit putting a, a cell tower over there. But obviously sparsely populated area, well, sparse is not the same as uninhabited. And besides, if you're experiencing an emergency, you're like 10 times as screwed. If it's happening somewhere where there aren't any big roads or towns nearby, and the big secret here is that all this can be done with modern existing phones, the radios that are actually in the, the phone that you have right now. So it's not as though you'll, you'll have to upgrade or switch to a phone with a big stubby uh, antenna on it. That's probably why this is such a limited co- kind of idea. It's, it's not, not something you would want to rely on for, for any amount of time unless you had no other choice. So, yeah, I'm, I'm 100% behind this as an expansion for emergency services. But the problem is nobody makes money off of 911 except for, you know, lawyers. Uh, you know, ambulance chasers. But the only reason for carriers to get super excited about this is if satellite connections will give them a new opportunity for new huge extra fees for sending a text message uh, via a satellite instead of through a cell tower. And they should because uh, they, they, sh- they should try to limit this because it's a way more limited resource. Resource There's way less bandwidth available to a satellite than there is like to your local cell tower. You're not going to be streaming Netflix or you shouldn't be streaming Netflix through a satellite. Um, but see, I'm just worried about what happens, though, that when people start thinking of satellite phone coverage as an entitlement that allows them to TikTok from Burning Man instead of a miracle that prevents a rescue mission from turning into a recovery mission, if you follow my, 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 my gist there. Because if this service expands and becomes popular, it's going to be need to be serviced by more satellites, more low Earth satellites. And those are already starting to become a problem. 
just Space, uh, SpaceX Starlink service has already nearly tripled the number of satellites that are in orbit. We used to have, before Starlink, I think it was less than 2,000 uh, uh, human-made satellites in orbit, and now they're close to 5,000, and they want to increase that number beyond that, beyond, way beyond that. And that's causing problems. They're raising alarms all over. Astronomy is uh, just the start. The possibility of having a major car crash in low Earth orbit, the kind that wipes out communications, that's, that risk is only getting greater the more satellites that, that uh, companies put up there. So like, maybe being able to post a selfie from anywhere in Yosemite is, isn't worth the risk? I'm just asking. Well, we're going to take another break here. Coming up next, I've got another story about Google's future plans, but it's something a little bit more lighthearted, defying efforts efforts to weaponize Google and YouTube against lies intended to manipulate upcoming elections in the United States. <clears throat> Be prepared to laugh after this. Well, Google is engaging in not one but two very important missions ahead of the upcoming November midterm elections here in the United States. Number one, making it harder for organizations to manipulate voters through the abuse of Google services. And number two, making sure everybody knows that they're doing this. Well, there's been plenty of time to analyze the 2020 election, and studies have raised plenty of questions about what services like YouTube and Google News and Google Search could be doing better to protect users from manipulation and misinformation. And yeah, YouTube's been dropping the ball. Famously, the One America News Network, as a you know, propaganda network, posted a disinformation video the day after the 2020 presidential election, insisting that Trump was the true winner. And it got more than 340,000 views before YouTube stopped offering the lame, well, it doesn't violate any YouTube policies excuse, and finally took it down. YouTube only added a new policy against election inf- misinformation in December uh, when, the, when the damage had already been done. We were just a few weeks from the January 6th attempted insurrection. Uh, again, correlation is not causality, causation, but nonetheless, you wonder about what could have been done if, if that sort of stuff had been not allowed to fester and metastasize across YouTube. Uh, also, the findings of a New York New York University study made a big splash just this week. It concluded that, and here I'm going to quote from a New York University press release, those most skeptical of the election's legitimacy were shown three times as many election fraud-related videos as were the least skeptical participants. Roughly eight additional recommendations out of approximately 400 videos suggested to each study participant. The study recruited 361 participants and tracked the videos recommended to them by YouTube's algorithms after they'd click on, clicked on videos assigned to them by the study. They'd collected data from October 29th, 2020, just before the election, all the way through to December 8th, 2020. Now, the fact that YouTube just sort of blithely showed videos claiming election fraud to users who co- appear to demonstrate an interest in more videos about election fraud that's probably not surprising. It's harmful and needs to be addressed, but not surprising. But the study also discovered that the users who expressed a neutral interest in the election were shown election fraud misinformation videos far more often than videos that discuss that discuss the tra- the topic truthfully and sensibly. Now, the study acknowledges that 361 users is only a very small sample, and yeah, uh, YouTube agreed with them completely on that point. YouTube responded in the press by saying that the study's findings don't really track with YouTube's internal research. But it's clear that lessons were learned, and Google and YouTube, along with other services like Facebook and TikTok and Twitter, are implementing new changes ahead of the elections. But here's what Google and YouTube said that they're doing this week. Uh, First, searches for election-related content will put a much stronger emphasis on content from highly trusted and authoritative news sources, both national and local ones. Search also has brand new tools to refine queries about election returns and will continue to rely on the Associated Press for authoritative election results. Uh, YouTube, uh, that's getting information panels about voter registration and voting locations, similar to what's in Google Search already. They're also adding information panels alongside videos and putting videos from authoritative sources in there in the watch next uh, feed that comes on after that uh, stuff. And all this joins a brand new user education campaign about spotting misinformation. 
they're doing some special stuff on election day too. On election day, live election news and returns are going to be embedded into YouTube and Google's pages alongside user-generated content that might be misleading people. They'd also like to remind everybody about the changes they've made to content policies since November of 2020 and how frequently YouTube has struck down videos or suspended entire channels that have been posting misinformation about the midterms. I've always had a certain amount of sympathy for YouTube and Twitter and other social media or user-generated content services. Twitter originated as this super weird idea that most people laughed at, like, hey, here's a 140-character post that are big enough to share a URL in and small enough to fit inside a standard text message. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a trifle. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a amuse-bouche. Uh, so the the tool itself and the culture of the company that built it didn't really anticipate that their fun little toy represented what amounts to a choking hazard for the people who use it and the society that hosts it. So it's been a bumpy transition uh, to this new era of, okay, it turns out that we thought we were, we thought we were making fruit punch here. We actually created an unstable isotope of a virus that's going to be killing everybody unless we do something about it. Uh, so yeah, even for Google, even for YouTube, it's a bumpy transition over the past uh, 10 or 20 years. They were founded under the dogma that information should be easy to find and easy to share, and that it's the users who should have the power and the freedom to decide whether a video or article is valid and valuable. That responsibility shouldn't be uh, handed over to an algorithm, certainly not be turned over to the people who run the company who might have their own opinions, but what people should be seeing and not seeing. And while information wants to be free, it's, it's a great bumper sticker, but it's a disaster at this scale. And we've all learned that the idea that content must be moderated is actually essential policy. And the political climate, it just makes their job harder. Every video that YouTube strikes down, every news source that's deemed less trustworthy and consequently ranked lower in search results, that's one more invitation for public opinion or people in power to insist that Google is trying to push a specific point of view or a specific agenda and trying to keep them down. Boy, uh, well, look, this doesn't look let uh, Google and YouTube off the hook, of course, but it's a moving target for sure. So let's hope that they've learned from past mistakes indeed. And let's also hope that one of the things they've learned is that if something smells like crap, it should be taken down, whether or not there's actually a policy specifically prohibiting crap on the platform. We're going to take one more break. And after that, that incredibly important editorial that I alluded to at the start of the show. Well, I'm sorry to have to be the one to deliver such alarming news. And I don't want to be one of these rabble rousers who tries to stir people to action. But I have this platform. I've been entrusted with this responsibility. I will be abdicating that responsibility to myself, to good taste. I'm trying to think of the name of that person who was not, not, uh, they didn't, uh, uh, not the, uh, he was on Love Boat and then he was on Get Smart or before that he was, anyway, uh, to that guy who I, I, I tried to, I tried to, Bernie Coppell, that's the, that's the name. Uh, I asked myself, would Bernie Coppell approve of this ethical decision I'm about to make? Bernie Coppell is telling me to speak out about this. So I'm, I'm going to get out of my soapbox here. Uh, I'm going to have to stress, though, you'll understand because it's a very incendiary comments here about to come, that the following editorial is my personal responsibility. It does not necessarily represent the viewpoint of our absent co-host or of any corporate or contributor member of the Relay.fm network. Here we go. The upcoming holiday-themed Nest doorbell ring sound marking Oktoberfest implies that Google either doesn't know anything about Weird Al Yankovic or that they know of him but don't appreciate this artist's genius, the tremendous love for this creator amongst the general public, or Weird Al's impact on our society. There we go. Okay, I, it, it's done. The Band-Aid is ripped off. Now, I can hear you folks nodding along in agreement so hard that one of your wireless earbuds just you know flung out of your ear hole and landed on the subway tracks in front of you. I'm sorry about that, but pl please leave it be because descending from the platform and trying to retrieve it will put you in mortal danger. And also, you know, the rats deserve to hear this too. Okay, because this 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 affects everybody. I'm I'm raising this important alarm because I read an August 31 blog post, an official blog post to Google's official the keyword blog, 
Okay. And this post was innocently and deceptively entitled, learn how we fine tune the nest doorbell ringtones. Now this seemingly innocent title fails to conceal the briar's nest of hatred and raging injustice within on the surface. It's a fluffy little post about the process of developing holiday-themed doorbell rings and a preview of what we're going to be getting in the next few months for the people who own the Nest Doorbell. There's a preview of the Halloween one. It's entitled Halloween Witch. It's like a cackling witch. Okay, that's fine. Uh, a Thanksgiving Gobble. Okay, then. I uh, I will say as an aside that I think that any progressive listener would spend some time afterward uh, listening to these samples, thinking about the 25 innocent men and women put to death during the Salem witch trials or the 46 million turkeys every year, 46 million innocent creatures placed on this planet, the same planet by the same God or the same whatever, with the same right to live as any one of us and raised under cruel factory conditions before being slaughtered and placed on a Thanksgiving table that already contains twice as much food as anybody sitting at it needs. But these horrors, stark as they may be, still fade into insignificance when you reach the section in which the 2022 Oktoberfest-themed ring bell, uh, doorbell ringtone is unveiled. Okay, It's entitled, and I'm quoting this directly, Oktoberfest Accordion Polka. I'm going to read that again. Oktoberfest accordion polka. And I'm sure you will be as shocked and angry as I was when I clicked the play button and failed to hear music performed by international treasure and icon Weird Al Yankovic. Now, before anybody rushes off and starts misdirecting their highly appropriate rage, I hold the author of this blog post and the ringtone absolutely blameless. Malfeasance of this scale, this magnitude of this shocking design can only come from the, from the, from the very top. I mean, I'm, I'm, maybe they have kids, they have relatives who need you know, medical treatment, that sort of stuff. You, you, you need your medical coverage. You need to, I'm not judging you, sir, or madam, that's fine. But nonetheless, I refuse to be silent about this affront to common sense and respect for the arts. Mr. Yankovic invented the accordion. Okay, it didn't exist until June of 1979 when he duct tape a harmonica to the dust collection bag of an upright Sears vacuum cleaner. Yeah. And if you're ever in Washington, D.C., visit the Smithsonian, you can see that exact same prototypical accordion right it's, uh, right next to uh, Abe Lincoln's hat. And I think they actually took the uh, Apollo 11 uh, spacecraft. I think that they didn't remove it. They moved it over to make room for this inspirational and foundational uh, invention uh, only about like I mean, you were talking about a vacuum cleaner so we don't, they only moved it like 20 inches but there i mean there were hoists involved so there were that, that's a sign of respect and intent respect and intent that is sorely lacking in google i'm sorry i'm trying to restrain my anger and remain editorial about this uh then like alexander hamilton Al put a pencil to his temple, connected it to his brain, and he wrote his first refrain, a testament to his pain, and lo, a world hungry for truth and beauty received the world's very first polka. Subsequently, Weird Al forged a blazing path for others to follow, paved with glittering classics, uh, like Polkas on 45, Hooked on Polkas, Polka Party, The Hot Rocks Polka, Polka Your Eyes Out, Bohemian Polka, the Alternative Polka, Polka Power, the Angry White Boy, boy Polka, Polkarama, Polka Face. Now that's what I call Polka. And of course, the Hamilton Polka. Now this list doesn't even include his famous freestyle polkas, which are composed on the spot, on stage, exclusive to his legendary stadium shows. Like In the audience, at one such performance, performance 40 years ago, were, yes, a young Cool Modi and B.I.G., who, enthralled and inspired and energized by Al's energy and flow, went on to become foundational members of the early rap music. Another thing we would not have today were it not for Weird Al Yankovic. That Weird Al is worthy of a week-long, week-long Google Doodle is obvious. That Google did not turn to this man to compose and perform what I believe to be Google's first corporate-sponsored polka, uh, that's just criminal. Uh, it's criminal. Steve Jobs, if he were still running Google, would not have made that decision, okay? We should demand an explanation. And then, dear listeners, we should demand better. Okay, well, uh, you know, I 
let the chips fall where they may. I don't, I may not be here next week, either on the show in journalism or even on this planet. I don't know. I've, I've, I've made powerful enemies, but speaking truth to power is, uh, no, it's not the list. The, the text underneath the material podcast logo is it's Google all the way down. It's not speaking truth to power, but that's implied, I think. Okay. So that's going to, let's, let's, let's wrap this up for this week. Um, here's your weekly has Google's get the message campaign succeeded in getting Apple to totally cave on supporting RCS and their messages app yet update. No. And that does do it for this week. Once again, I'm sure that we're all sending our best wishes to flow for a speedy and linear recovery from COVID uh, vaccinations, boosters, and bed rest seem to be doing their magic. And it looks like she'll be back next. But of course, uh, I'm, <laughs> we're all encouraging her that, hey, if you need, if you need more rest, take more rest because we love you having, we, we you, you deserve, <laughs> you deserve like a full recovery. You deserve bed rest when you need best bed rest. Uh, but again, th- th- our thanks to everyone who created, uh, invented, conceived, manufactured, shipped delivered uh, and administered those vaccinations and boosters hail science uh, please do head to flowrights.tech to see all of flow's latest articles for gizmodo and you can find her on twitter and instagram at oh that flow as for me spell my last name to see me on instagram and twitter and go to wgbhnews.org to hear or watch my regular tech news segments on boston public radio as always you can help support our show and everything on the relay.fm network by becoming a member Head on over to relay.fm slash material to sign up and gain access to special members only episodes produced by all of Relay's contributors. And that includes us. Thanks so much for listening this week. We hope you come back again next week until then, please have a happy and healthy and fully vaccinated and boosted seven days. So long. (laughs) 